Welcome to the first episode of Suncast, a podcast produced by the Cornell Daily Sun that takes an in-depth look at the ongoings within the Cornell campus and the Ithaca area. I'm Emma Rosenbaum, a senior editor at the Sun and previous science editor. And I'm Anil Oza, the current assistant managing editor and previous science editor. On this episode, we'll be talking all about the COVID vaccines. So everyone is pretty sick of this pandemic, and what makes it worse is not knowing when things will go back to normal. And the answer to this is vaccinations. In this episode, we will break down who on campus is eligible for vaccines, where they're being given out, and if there's a reason for people to be hesitant towards getting vaccinated. And finally, what role will Cornell play in distributing vaccines on campus? Keep listening if you want to hear the answer to these questions and more. So almost all Cornellians, students, faculty, and staff have become eligible to get the COVID vaccine. And as the university starts to shift gears towards a fully vaccinated campus, we wanted to know about the student experience getting vaccinated so far. As of April 6th, any individual over the age of 16 is eligible to sign up for the vaccine, as long as you're a resident of New York State or if you live on campus or in university housing. However, this has only been announced very, very recently. Before this announcement, students who wanted to receive a dose of the vaccine were often finding pretty innovative ways to do it. I myself got my first dose about a month ago because I'm a TA for an in-person class. And so I was able to sign up for my vaccine through the Tompkins County Registry, which meant that I only had to take the TCAT bus to the mall, which is about 15 minutes away, as opposed to driving about an hour away to Binghamton or Syracuse. Yeah, and I actually talked to someone um, who called various different Walgreens throughout the area in the hopes of receiving a dose that was left over at the end of the day. So if someone missed their appointment, And she succeeded after calling about 10 different stores and was able to get her first dose that same day and then schedule her second dose. I also talked to another student, Jordana Soccer, a junior who at the beginning of the semester actually had an off-campus job delivering groceries. So she was eligible under phase 1B to get vaccinated. I was eligible for the vaccine because I'm an Instacart driver. So in New York State, if you were a front-facing grocery worker, you were allowed to get vaccinated and I qualified under that. Right now, there's a bunch of companies making vaccines. The main ones right now distributing vaccines in New York are Pfizer and BioNTech, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson. From the most recent trials, the Pfizer and BioNTech vaccine, who are partnering to make this vaccine, are reportedly 95% effective in preventing COVID-19, which is the illness that you get if you get the virus. These two vaccines are administered in two doses with a recommended time of three weeks between each dose, but it could go up to about four or five weeks as well, with a vaccinated person being fully protected 28 days after each of the doses. The Pfizer and BioNTech vaccine is a type of mRNA vaccine. Like you said, getting COVID-19 as if we don't know that that's what we get. It's a nuanced difference. Okay, that's fair. Okay, let's break down what an mRNA vaccine means. So a messenger RNA or mRNA vaccine is not the typical vaccine where part of the virus is injected into the body so that antibodies are made to fend it off, which is how the typical flu vaccine works. Instead, mRNA injected into the body can teach immune cells how to make a protein that can fight the virus. This protein, called a spike protein, is also found on the surface of the virus. After the mRNA reaches the immune cells, it relays instructions for how to make this spike protein. The body recognizes this protein as if it were the virus and begins facilitating an immune response and building antibodies. The body now knows how to fight off future infection by the virus. The other vaccine manufacturer is Moderna. Their vaccine uses a similar mRNA technology and is 
94.5% effective. It also has two doses, which need to be administered four weeks apart. So the other vaccine manufacturing company that has generated a lot of buzz recently is Johnson & Johnson. The J&J vaccine is the first one to be administered in one dose, which makes distribution a lot easier. And the vaccine has an overall 66.3% effectiveness in protecting against COVID-19 infection. The J&J vaccine, a type of viral vector vaccine, works slightly differently than the mRNA vaccines. A modified version of the COVID-19 virus, called a vector virus, is injected into the body and gives the cells instructions on how to build the same harmless spike protein found on the COVID virus. Think of spike proteins as a marker that tells the body the cell attached to it shouldn't be there and it should be fought off. It's not the same as the harmful part of the virus that causes infection. The introduction of the vector virus into the body teaches it how to fight off the actual virus in case of future exposure. Yeah, so I talked to Frank Kreppa, who's the public health director of Tompkins County, a few weeks ago about vaccine rollout here. So he's in charge of coordinating the county, which includes Cornell, Ithaca College, and Tompkins Cortland Community College. For the past year, he's been in charge with testing, vaccines, and messages surrounding the pandemic. He also talks to the colleges in the county to organize their reopening and consults with them on the best path forward with regards to the virus. I asked him specifically about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine to see if there would be special consideration for who would get it because it is just one dose, but it is less effective. So when you get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, are you going to kind of make a decision on who gets what vaccine? You know, the Johnson & Johnson Despite it has slightly lower efficacy, there's some issues with that number because it's been tested in populations with different variants and just higher virus prevalence. So I think most public health experts I've heard from have kind of compared all the vaccines similarly. But do you anticipate maybe favoring the Johnson Johnson vaccine for college students because they're younger and can bear the risk or potentially because it's one dose giving it to those in rural areas because then you only need to find them once and give them that first shot? Yeah, so there's obviously a lot of a lot of thought that goes into those processes. What I would say um, is that anyone should get whatever vaccine is available to them first, right? They're all they all are going to protect, um, and uh, we would encourage folks to to seek the first vaccine that they can find. Um, to your question about how do we make decisions on where we use them. Um, Yes, because Johnson & Johnson is a single dose series, um, we are absolutely gonna be looking at um, what populations it makes most sense to target with those. Right now, the state has prioritized homebound individuals for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Um, so uh, we haven't received any yet, but if we had, we would have been required to, to use it on our homebound individuals. But we're looking at multiple populations, whether it's our, our homeless, uh, our migrant workers, um, those that might be in, uh, in, in our jails, um, and students, of course, comes up, particularly with the timing. I also talked to Dr. Colin Parrish, who's a professor of virology at the Cornell Veterinary School. Um, he studies viruses and viral transmission among animals. I spoke with him about the vaccination process and what he thinks a vaccinated future at Cornell would look like. Yeah, so the research that we do is, you know, and we've done this for, for at least a few decades now, since it started in 1988, has been on uh, viruses that jump from one animal to another and then cause epidemics and so, or pandemics. So, you know, they're, they're basically sort of similar to what's happened with the, with the pandemic coronavirus in humans. So, you know, so the understanding the epidemiology, the nature of the virus, how it's shared, how it's transmitted, those are all things that we're very interested in. 
we're talking about these vaccine brands as though they're like, you know, Fords and General Moji and mm -hmm. just or something. But, you know, the, the uncertainty sort of is around whether or not they're protective against infection and possible transmission. But the, the, data, the data that is available suggests that they're going to be quite effective at both preventing infection and transmission. And there's been a lot of talk about mutant strains with COVID. Do you see that um, coming up again with the, dis the distribution of vaccine? Do you think the mutant strains will pose a threat? Yeah, the, I mean, there's a lot of talk about the mutants and, you know, the variants, so-called variants, and some people call them the scariants. You know, it's like they're, that's sort of a word that I've seen <laughs> put around. And I mean, the, you know, they're definitely a, a cause for concern. Um, you know, we do know that coronaviruses can evolve. Um, there's a there's an avian coronavirus called infectious bronchitis virus, and for which there is a you know there have been vaccines. We know that some of the viruses have been able to escape the vaccines um, to some degree by by mutations. So I, I think it is something where, you know people are going to need to be aware of. Um, you know, it does seem that the the and the, the variants are real, but that you know, but right at the moment, the evidence is it is that the vaccines are quite effective against the variants that are around right now. Um, I mean, they that may you know, so the viruses may pick up more mutations in the future and escape the vaccines. But the way the vaccines are being made, um, all of the vaccines that are currently in use in the United States can be changed very quickly to to include the mutant. There's a lot of uncertainty right now, at least in the general public, about how the vaccine will evolve with the mutant strains. Parrish hypothesized that vaccine manufacturers are planning to not change the entire vaccine, but include a portion of the vaccine that contains the variant sequences. He said this is relatively easy to do based on the existing RNA technology. Right now, the vaccines seem to be very good. They certainly protect against infection against disease and particularly severe disease and death. Um, and I think that they'll be, they'll be good for the next year. We may need to do an update at that point, you know, whether people will need to have like an annual booster or, you know, a new vaccine every, you know, a second a vaccination booster every couple of years. I mean, that seems like it might be likely, but um, I think, you know, there's a lot of, People are surveilling these things. They're looking at it very closely, and I think they'll they'll you know they'll be able to figure it out you know in time to to update the vaccines as necessary. So the ultimate goal with getting everyone vaccinated is to achieve herd immunity, not just here on campus, but in the county as a whole. Prepa discussed this a bit when I talked to him. The kind of buzzword right now is herd immunity. You know what is herd immunity, and what number of people do you think we need to be vaccinated to get there? Yeah, herd immunity is when we have enough uh, individuals in our community that have uh, immunity um, from the particular disease. Um, so in this case, either having been vaccinated um, or uh, if they previously had COVID, they could potentially have um, some natural antibodies. Um, we still encourage folks to get vaccinated even if they've previously had COVID. But um, so our goal is to try to hit between 75 and 80% of our population um, having um, vaccinated immunity. Um, and the purpose for that is uh, the disease needs a host to live. 
Uh, and so uh, the more um, barriers that the disease bumps up against in the community because somebody has immunity from it, um, the more likely it is to end with the, the, the one individual that has you know, contracted the disease. One recent development the university has undertaken is mandating students to register their vaccination status to the Daily Check Portal by April 15th. The website says that this information is mainly being used for data collection purposes, mostly. Vaccinated individuals who have been exposed to COVID have different quarantine rules according to New York State than those who are not, but it still remains to be seen whether those vaccinated will be subject to different protocols than those who are not. So looking forward to fall semester, it'd be interesting to see if the, if those who are vaccinated could have access to certain buildings um, compared to those who are not. I don't know. What do you think? Right. Or I think also if you're vaccinated, maybe you don't have to be tested as often because it's less likely that you get COVID. So maybe instead of twice a week for students, just testing them once a week will be enough. Yeah. It's just interesting because testing takes up so many resources and money. And if people are vaccinated, would there even be a need for testing anymore? Yeah. I think right now, Vaccinated students still have to get tested, but with more students getting vaccinated, maybe we could shut down a couple of the testing sites and use them for their proper purposes. Yeah, Parrish also talked about repurposing the testing sites potentially for vaccination sites. That was just something he was speculating, not confirmed. Right, and Cornell actually was recently approved to be a distributor of the COVID vaccines. I talked to Frank the other day, and he said that Cornell had applied to the state to be able to give out vaccines right here on campus. And the university hasn't made any announcements on it, but we've had it confirmed that they have the capabilities of doing that. On that note, the university actually did just announce that they are planning for an almost entirely in-person fall semester. But what exactly lecture halls will look like will kind of depend on how many students are vaccinated by August. In the announcement, they say if above 50% of the entire campus is vaccinated, classes will be kind of in their normal state as they were before the pandemic. But if less than 50% of the campus is vaccinated, it'll kind of look like classes now where there's some hybrid instruction, some Zoom classes and some distance classrooms. Um, but the university is also mandating that students be vaccinated by the time they return to campus in the fall. Yeah, um, when I talked to Dr. Parrish a couple weeks ago, he thought it would be possible for the majority of people on campus to be vaccinated by fall. So right now, it does seem like vaccine distribution will be the step that kind of takes us over this pandemic. But there also is a lot of false information that's been circulating since the summer, which has created a lot of mistrust towards the vaccine in certain individuals. A poll done by the Associated Press found that half of Americans want to receive a COVID shot. I read an article in the New York Times that presented the opinions of people who did not want to receive their COVID shot, and it seemed like the sentiments shared, which are what I've actually heard in my own life, is that the process um, to create a vaccine was too rushed for it to be safe. Yeah, and conspiracy theories circulating right now include that this vaccine can change your DNA or that it contains a microchip so that the government can use it to monitor the population. These theories seemed inevitable to some researchers. and. One explanation from disease narrative experts is that an information vacuum, this lack of information, can develop when the public does not get clear scientific explanations during a crisis like a pandemic. So people turn to these familiar narratives that, although have no substantial basis, fill that vacuum. I think these conspiracy theories are so crazy. When I look them up, there's just like an endless amount of them. Like the microchip one uh, apparently was implemented by Bill Gates. I don't know if you heard about that. Um, I just think it's interesting that the government, the idea that the government will use that for population surveillance as if they aren't already surveying us through some method or through 
like our search history or something like that. So right, it, especially because we carry phones that track all of our behaviors already. So yeah, I don't know why people aren't worried about that versus this untangible idea. But it isn't just conspiracy theorists and anti-vaxxers who mistrust the vaccine, and they aren't actually the biggest issue. Racial disparities have long existed in healthcare. The African American population has been disproportionately affected by the pandemic, accounting for 21% of deaths from COVID. Only 18% of Black Americans and 40% of Latinx Americans trust that a COVID-19 vaccine will be effective, according to an article from the journal Annals of Internal Medicine. So this mistrust is the biggest hurdle for getting the majority of the population vaccinated, which makes it seem like actually making the vaccine was the easiest part. Vaccine hesitancy is something that was on top of mind for Krapa the other day when I talked to him, who said that these historic racial disparities in access to healthcare have hindered distribution, and he's playing with ways to get these different populations more willing to get the vaccine. We have areas of concern um, with folks that may be hesitant or are not um, not interested in the vaccine um, in every population. Um, and it's hard to it's hard to know for certain where because we've been doing these targeted um, distribution events because of the prioritization. Um, but I think generally speaking, we know in every population we've got some education and convincing to do um, so folks will seek a vaccination. Are there any sort of groups that you are particularly you know concerned about, whether that be ethnic or racial groups or kind of political groups or just, you know, certain geographic groups that you are specifically concerned about not being interested in getting vaccinated? Yeah, I mean, I think we have concerns in every population, as I said, but obviously we know um, that in our communities of color, they are disproportionately um, uh, lack access to healthcare in general. Um, so we would imagine that would extrapolate to this situation. So we've got to do work to make sure that those populations have access. And I think we've We've already started to do that um, in, in a few different ways. Um, and, and I think uh, our rural communities, um, we've got to do some work. It's a bit harder uh, for people that live out in the rural areas to, uh, to access, say, a mall sampling site, for example, that we've set up here. So we know we're going to have to bring the vaccine to where people are at some point. Um, to make sure that it's as accessible as possible for everyone. As an expert in the virology field, here's what Dr. Parrish had to say about it. There's really no reason to avoid the vaccines. And, you know, I'm as, you know, I, I think, you know, there's, a, there's sort of a lot of stories out there that are, you know, sort of aimed at making people, you know, unsure of the vaccines, all of these things about, you know, blood clots and a few people in Europe and things like that. But the severity of getting coronavirus, you know, the likelihood of getting severe disease is, you know, thousands of fold greater than that, than any of the side effects that have been described. So, you know, the balance of the evidence is really that the vaccines are, you know, they're super good. They're, they're as good as any vaccine that I've ever seen and that they will help to solve the problem that we're all dealing with for the last year if people, you know, take them and you know, use common sense after that in the future. So. so this vaccine hesitancy doesn't seem to really be an issue for Cornell students. I think largely all students want to get vaccinated and some are taking really creative methods to get their shots. But most of the students that I talk to have one concern and that's the side effects from the vaccine. And that could just be your arm being sore for a couple of days, but a lot of people are worried about being sick or really tired for a couple of days as well. I also think just being... In, at a university campus 
hesitancy towards the vaccine isn't really an issue because we have greater access to information, um, like telling us which concerns are founded and which are unfounded. But I did talk to uh, Jordana about this as well. Um, I would have taken any vaccine that was offered, but I definitely am glad I got Pfizer. I didn't really care what it was made of. I was going to get it either way because I trust science. There's a lot of information out there on COVID-19 vaccines, and hopefully this episode helped break down what's relevant to our campus. If you haven't been vaccinated yet, sign up for the Tompkins Registry, which will send you emails when there are doses available in Tompkins County. It's a lot easier than driving an hour out of the way to Syracuse or Binghamton. The link to the Tompkins Registry to sign up with your email will be in our show notes. You can also check out New York State's website or the CDC's vaccine finder. Well, that brings this first episode to an end. You are able to contact us at aoza at cornellsun.com and erosenbaum at cornellsun.com. Thanks so much for listening all the way through, and we'll see you next time.